you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. behavior to begin with he was very hyper he was sweating profusely I could see his heart of course we had stripped him down for security purposes he asked me for one of my cigarettes so I gave him a cigarette finally uh, after about two hours had elapsed which put it around 1 p.m. the head of the Secret Service came up and I conferred with him and he told me that Oswald had in effect died and uh, it should shock him because it, it will mean the death penalty so I return and say, Jack, it looks like it's going to be the electric chair for you. Instead of being shocked, he became calm. He quit sweating. His heart slowed down. I asked him if he wanted a cigarette, and he advised me he didn't smoke. And I was just astonished that this was a complete difference in behavior from what I was expecting. I would say that his life had depended on him getting Oswald. What is up everybody? Welcome to episode number 110 of the Lone Gummit Podcast. This is your boy Rob Clark at the helm of the ship with you here today. And a beautiful day in the neighborhood it is, as Fred Rogers would say. Sorry for the delay in getting this out to you, but, you know, shit happens. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Um, but we're here, so today we're going to be talking about the killing of J.D. Tippett and who did it, why they did it, and some of the fallout from it actually happening. Um, to the best of my ability. Now, of course, what I'm going to be telling you today is not etched in stone by any means. Um, it is merely my somewhat expert opinion based on putting various pieces of this crazy puzzle together 
in a way that cohesively fits and makes logical sense. That's all I'm doing here today, people. And I'm sure some people are going to disagree with me. And if you do, hey, that's great. Let me know why. You know, feel free to comment on this episode where you find it or send me an email, the Lone Government Podcast at gmail.com. Um, I'm open to hear any, anything, you know. So I played a little clip at the beginning of the show. And that was a member of the Dallas Police Department who was in charge of watching Ruby after he was arrested. And he speaks about it, you know, Jack Ruby being extremely nervous, you know, wait, waiting to hear if Oswald was going to make it or not. And that after he learned that he had passed, well, then Jack Ruby got very, very calm, <laughs> almost at ease then that his job was finally complete. Um, before we get into this too deeply, I want to in- introduce to you a new segment of the show, <laughs> and it's it's based on, you know, recent feedback, so uh, I figured, you know, what the hell, why not make it a staple of the show? So here it is, people. This is a new segment for the Lungoman Podcast, and if you have any examples of what I'm about to, to tell you and what, what this new segment is going to be, please get them to me on social media or send me an email in some form or fashion, some way. I need help. I'm only one person. I can't be everywhere at all times and see everything, so I need your help with this <laughs> new segment of the show. You're going you're gonna to dig it. Here we go. You'll understand in a second. Ridiculousness of the Week. Yes, Ridiculousness of the Week. <laughs> this week, we're going to highlight Judith Baker. That's right. Judith Baker, once again, gets highlighted on this show that she loves so much. Judith Baker has a new book coming out next month. That's right, people. In case you didn't know, she has a new book coming out. But this one is fiction. And she claims it's fiction. And not only is it fiction, it's science fiction that's right but you know that's not really ridiculous is it i mean you know sure it's 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 kind of weird for you know judith baker to come out with a fiction book science fiction book and it's called letters to the cyborgs talking about uh artificial intelligence and and the diminishment of uh you know the human species and, you know, us involving being integrated more into computers and this and that and the other and blah, 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 blah. Now, the ridiculous part is, of course, what she claims is in this book. Now, believe it or not, she claims that Lee Harvey Oswald wrote three of the stories that are featured in this book. That's right. She claims that Lee Harvey Oswald wrote three science fiction stories. Okay. Now, when I asked her, I'm sure, you know, you don't have the original manuscripts of this. Um, She said, oh, no, no, Lee, Lee typed them up. He wrote them and then he typed them on a typewriter and, and gave them to me. So, of course, we can't analyze a typewriter. Okay, even if these original typewritten manuscripts exist, which I doubt they do, 
Um, because then they'd have to be dated back to 1963. Uh, you know, that's that's a lot of work, you know, to get a, a typewriter that, that could go back that far. And, I, you know, I'm not really sure when exactly Lee Oswald had access to a typewriter. I mean, possibly at Ruth Payne's house, but that was in Dallas. So if Judy Baker has this stuff, it had to have been done while Lee was in New Orleans. That's the only time she knew him and was around him. So pretty sure Lee Oswald didn't own a typewriter in New Orleans. So, you know, I, I'm really not sure when he had time to write these science fiction stories and then type them, you know, and trying to read his god-awful grammar and spelling and punctuation. And, and she, you know, she claims that she, she proofread this stuff and fixed all the, the grammatical errors and, and spelling errors. And, uh, you know... Basically, kind of, you know, helped re re edit them, you know, for her book. I guess was what I'm trying to say here. Um, <laughs> so that, ladies and gentlemen, is your ridiculousness of the week. <laughs> all right, all right, enough of that. You know, enough of that. Just, just Judy, just please stop. Okay, I mean it's it's like it says it's ridiculous. So, if any of you guys have any examples of of ridiculousness in research, let me know. Send them to me, and and we'll get them on the show. Appreciate it. I'll give you credit. Okay, big shouts out to Randy and Muncie. I see you, my brother. I appreciate it. Randy's been enjoying the show. He's been downloading the hell out of it. And I encourage all of you to do the same. This is episode 110. There's 109 other shows in the archives if you're digging what you're listening to. You know, feel free to go back and listen and download any past shows. They're all free for you. Uh, you know, they're there on Spreaker. They're on iTunes. So get them. All right. I implore you. Get them. Listen. Love them. Share them. And speaking of that, you know, the numbers are, no, are way, 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 way up. I don't know what the hell is going on, uh, but I'm not complaining. And I appreciate everybody out there who supports the show, who shares the show, who's been liking the show, been downloading the show. You know, that's awesome. That's awesome. And if you'd like to donate to the show, head over to tlgpodcast.com and click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee, whatever you want to do. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, Spreaker Renewals right around the corner. I'll be here before I know it, and I will be $200 poorer. Um, so please help a brother out if you can. If you're enjoying the show, if you want to keep listening and hearing this show, help me out. Enough of that. All right, let's get into this. The murder of J.D. Tippett. Okay. Now, I want to play you one more sound clip. And this is with Jack Ruby's jailer, or one of them that he had, you know, over the years. Uh, so please turn up the volume. This this sound clip is a little low, I, and I, it's out of my control. I can't boost it. I snagged it off YouTube, so it is what it is. But uh, you can hear it. I mean, you can hear it definitely. It's just a little low. So crank it up and have a listen. I'll be back in fifty-four seconds. Jack Ruby was dying or getting sick, uh, I believe it was 1967 or 69, 
um, he reached up and put a little note in your hand, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he sure did. He sure did. Uh, he and Melvin Bella, I believe, were together at the time, and he was still, he was ambulatory. Uh, he could walk then. He was still in pretty good shape, but he was sweating an awful lot, and his hand was, was wet. Where he had this dope mm -hmm. palm in his hand, and when he shook hands with me, uh, I knew he wanted me to read a note, and sure enough, it was a letter that Jack wrote saying that it was a conspiracy. And, uh, and his motive was to silence Oswald. His motive was to silence Oswald. And there you have that. Now you might say, well, Rob, why are you playing this Jack Ruby stuff when it comes to the murder of J.D. Tippett? Well, I'm going to tell you. Because I think an associate of Jack Ruby's murdered J.D. Tippett. And people have been trying to link Oswald to some kind of a conspiracy for 53 years and haven't really got very far. It's very hard to do. Some people claim to have done it. Some people uh, try to do it. Um, it's much easier, I believe, to link Jack Ruby. If you can prove that Jack Ruby was part of a conspiracy, then there you go. You know, you can go from there. Now, you just heard... Okay. One of Jack Ruby's jailers say that he passed him a note and it said that, you know, he it was part of his conspiracy, to, you know, any any to silence Oswald. Um you know, you heard at the beginning of the show the clip from the DPD officer, you know, that Jack was relieved upon hearing how, that Oswald had died. And you know, Ruby, he's the king flip-flopper. You know, he, he's claimed his innocence. He's claimed there's no conspiracy. He's claimed there's a conspiracy. He's claimed that his life's in danger, his family's life is in danger. You know, he claims he did it on a spur-of-the-moment thing. So, you know, who's to say? You know, but it's times like these where you got to say, okay, this is what we got. Okay, we have a jailer, you know, claiming this. Does he have the note? I don't know. You know, people can say anything, but it's what we have, you know, and the guy who worked for the DPD, you know, who was talking to Jack Ruby after, you know, after he had shot Oswald and, you know, would this cop be lying? I don't know, you know, but it's what we have. And when you piece it together with other stuff that we have, for instance, the testimony of William Duff, who I did the show on a couple months ago called Duff, that Jack Ruby would go to General Walker's house and meet with him behind closed doors, uh, at least as, as far as, as Duff is concerned, you know, when he was employed there for, you know, five or six months at the end of 62, coming into like 63 in the March. Um, so what's that tell us? Well, it tells us that Jack Ruby... If Duff is telling the truth, and there's no reason to believe he's not, um, that he's telling us that if Jack Ruby's meeting with General Edwin Walker, who is part of the John Birch Society, part of all these right-wing extreme groups that did provide a real and credible, clear and present dangerous threat to John F. Kennedy... And this can be verified from FBI documents, Secret Service documents, 
They were watching these guys in California and Texas, New Orleans. We have Joseph Miltier, part of this stuff in the, in, in the Southeast, who had foreknowledge of what was going to happen. We can associate him with Guy Bannister in, in New Orleans, among other people, Leander Perez, uh, you know, all these, uh, all these other high-ranking guys in, in all these far extreme right movements. We can tie these guys to General Walker. Um, you know, General Walker was in New Orleans on November 22nd, meeting with Leander Perez for hours behind closed doors. You know, we can associate Oswald with, you know, the guy Bannister office and who was likely handing out flyers for him uh, in New Orleans. So we can tie a lot of this stuff together. You know, and you might say, well, what, Jack Ruby doesn't seem like a, a really extreme right winger, you know. But I guarantee you one thing. Jack Ruby was more, mo- actually, he was most likely a anti-communist, a vehement anti-communist. He, he very much loved his country, Jack Ruby did. Um, I believe he informed on the House of Un-American Activities Committee. For a time in the fifties, um, so we could at least pin that. You know, he was he was trying to, uh, you know, orchestrate a deal to send jeeps and and, and stuff to, to Castro before he flipped to, to communism. Um, Jack Ruby, you know, we can tie him to gun running going on. Um, so a variety thing. He was dipping his toe in the, in this kind of stuff. So. We can at least tie him to that. Now, I don't know, you know, other than that, how we could possibly tie him to any any extreme right-wing movements. But, you know, the conspirators of this plot and this plan, okay, they would have wanted a buffer between, you know, if Oswald was involved in the original plot, or even if he didn't really know what was totally going on. But let's say he knew something about what was happening. He had heard things, maybe. Or he was involved, maybe. Um, Then the conspirators would have wanted a buffer. They would have wanted somebody who had access and an in to people on the police force. Because Jack Ruby couldn't really be tied to the John Birch Society and things of this nature. So he was a perfect buffer. And he had ends to members of the Dallas Police Department. He would have known the seedier ones uh, being in the business that he was in and uh, and things of this nature. Um, he would have known the ones who would have likely taken money to do a job. Uh, you know, maybe some guys interested in second jobs, uh, you know, to help supplement their income, things of this nature. Um, so this could possibly be the connection between Walker and Ruby. Because, you know, when Ruby was talking to Earl Warren, he said, look, I'm, you got to get me out of Dallas, I, you know, and take me to Washington. My life's in danger here. And he told Earl Warren, look, there's a John Birch Society here and General Edwin Walker. I'm not safe here. You know, he told him that. It's right there in black and white in the Warren Commission report. You can't get past it. Okay, so this is what Jack Ruby is afraid of. He wanted to be given truth serum or a lie detector test, 
You know, so he would have an excuse to tell the truth. He figured that might save his skin, you know. Then we have, in the new book, General Walker and the Murder of President Kennedy, we have a letter from General Walker to one of his associates, pretty much telling him that, look, the only way Jack Ruby is leaving that hospital is in a box, and we're going to make sure of it. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and they, they were worried about him talking. <clears throat> Excuse me, shit. <clears throat> So, there is a demonstrable link between these extreme right-wingers, General Walker, and Jack Ruby. Now, Jack Ruby most definitely had links to, the, to these uh, seedier parts of the police department that frequented his club, um, who were dating his dancers. You know, there's an instance, I believe, of Harry Olsen. And look, it doesn't take an army, okay, of dirty cops and and, and a conspiracy of a hundred people to pull this off. No, no, no. I mean, Jack Ruby could have been really tight with Harry Olson. And that could have been his end. He could have been like, all right, Harry, you know, I know you're you're dirty as shit. Look, this is what needs to happen. All right. I need you, but you know. The problem with Harry Olson is he had hurt his leg a couple months before the assassination, and he wasn't even on active duty with the police. I don't even know if he was pulling desk duty at the time. He had injured his leg. He had had surgery on his leg. Something happened. He had a bad wheel. Okay? So even if Jack Ruby had originally approached Harry Olson to do what he was asking this guy to do, uh, maybe Harry Olson couldn't, didn't think that he could pull it off or get away or run if he had to. But maybe Harry Olson knew somebody on the force, somebody who would <clears throat> do this deed that Jack Ruby was asking him to do. Um, and it wasn't really a bad deed, actually, um, depending on how you look at it. Okay, if I approach, if I approach J.D. Tippett and say, "Look, man, here's what needs to happen." Something's going to happen. The president is going to be shot. The person that did it needs to be caught and eliminated quickly. Here's the plan. All right, he's going to be on the bus and it's going to stop right here. What I need you to do, you know, we're going to get a description out on the radio. What I need you to do is confront this man. Create some kind of a scene where you end up shooting this guy. Alright? Now, it's a win-win situation for J.D. Tippett because A, he gets paid for doing this job. And B, he gets to be a hero. He gets to be the guy who captured and killed the assassin of the president. I mean, you're going to go down in history. Infamous. Hero. Accolades. Promotions. You know, and like I said, not a lot of people need to know about it. Alright? Not a lot of people need to know about it. Um, it could have been Jack Ruby and J.D. Tippett. And, and one other person. 
You know, I'm just throwing Harry Olsen in there as, as some kind of a conduit. You know, I don't know if he actually was or not. Um, you know, he did speak with, with Jack Ruby for hours the night of the assassination. Um, so even if Harry Olsen wasn't involved at all, but somehow Jack Ruby was pointed in the direction of this J.D. Tippett guy who would pretty much do anything for money. Uh, you know, he was a... He'd been on the force 11 years. He knew how to do things, get away with things. Um, he, had a, he had a pretty nice house in a nice neighborhood with, a, you know, a nice family. Living much larger than he should have been. Uh, you know, he was taking second jobs at, at you know, Austin's Barbecue and things of this nature. Security jobs here, there, bouncing. Whatever he could do to earn extra money. Um, so the proposition, hey, look, all you got to do is kill this guy. All right. This guy is going to be the guy that just killed the president. So you're going to be doing the world a favor. You're going to be doing your job, essentially. You're going to get paid for it, and you're going to be a hero. I mean, what more could you ask for? I mean, that's a hell of a proposition. You know, that's something to think about. If somebody brought that to you and said it in front of you and said, okay, look, in the course of you doing your job, you know, this is how it's all going to play out. So, by all accounts, he says, okay. Because we know J.D. Tippett's movements now a lot better than we did back then. You know, immediately after the assassination, within 10 minutes or so, he was sitting at the Good Luck Oil Company down at the end of the Houston Street Viaduct and down by the corner of Zang's. Um, he sat in this, in his patrol car at the Glocko station for approximately 10 to 15 minutes. And he was seen by at least five different people who knew who he was. So it's kind of undisputed. Now, this Glocko station was within visual sight uh, of the uh, this bus stop that Lee Oswald was supposed to get off at. Now, the bus never comes. It's, it's stuck in traffic, of course, in Dealey Plaza, which is why Oswald got off. So Tippett starts panicking, doesn't know what to do. Well, the bus never came. So how the hell am I supposed to, you know, do what I'm supposed to do? Well, he takes off and he heads for the top 10 record store, which is right across and down the street a bit from the Texas theater. And he goes in there and he uses the phone, asks, hey, can I use your phone? They say, yeah, sure. So he picks up the phone, doesn't say nothing, turns around and walks out. Then he proceeds to go and pull a gentleman over and look in his car, look all around his car, and then get in, get back in his patrol car and leave. Now, about this time, there's a patrol car pulling up at 1026 North Beckley, honking the horn. Was it Tippett? I don't know. Nobody knows. Um, Could have been. Now... When we get to 10th and Patton, and I'm going to lay it out for you like this. The best estimate for the murder of J.D. Tippett is somewhere around 1.06 p.m. And this is pulling from a collaboration of many of the witnesses, many of the witnesses. Um, people try to push it back to 1.15, 1.16, but... 
there's really no good evidence of that. Um, best evidence is, is people watching TV and know what time certain shows come on and or looking at their watch or looking at a clock when they heard gunshots. 106. Even Dale Myers, you know, with malice, Lone Nutter did it, concludes that the shooting was somewhere around 106. He just pushes the other events back a little bit to give Oswald enough time to get there. Um, now, here's the problem with that time frame is we have this from Butch Burroughs. Uh, we have a plane, two movies, called uh, War as Hell with Audie Murphy and Cry Battle with Van Heflin. And uh, we started the movie at 1 o'clock, and I was counting candy behind the candy case. And he also slipped in around between 1 and 1.7. So Oswald was in the theater sometime between 1 and 107. Which kind of eliminates him as a suspect in the Tippett murder. You know? So who could possibly have killed J.D. Tippett? Well, it had to be somebody that looked like Oswald. It had to be somebody with Oswald identification on them. So why does this point to Larry Crayford? Well, I'll tell you. Because on that day, November 22nd, 1963, there was a plethora of Oswald sightings that could have not possibly been our boy Lee Harvey Oswald because he was uh, demonstrably at other places at these times. So the first instance we have, of course, of an Oswald sighting, and this one's with Jack Ruby, is in the wee wee hours of the morning, like two in the morning on November 22nd, 1963. Mary Lawrence was a waitress at the Lucas B&B restaurant, and she stated this. Then on Friday, November 22nd, at approximately 2.15 a.m., a white male, five, about 5 foot 7 inches tall, about 140 pounds, with dark hair, entered the Lucas B&B Cafe, located at 3520 Oaklawn, where a subject is a waitress. Subject stated that this man was positively Lee Harvey Oswald. Subject said this man stated that he was waiting for Jack Ruby. Subject stated that Jack Ruby entered the cafe a short time later, but did not sit in the booth with this man. The man believed to be Oswald went over and sat with Jack Ruby. Subject stated that Ruby and the man believed to be Oswald left at approximately 2.45 a.m. At this point in the interview, the subject stated that she could not be sure that this man was Oswald, but if he had a small deep scar on his left cheek, it was him. Subject stated a few days after the assassination, she received an anonymous phone call telling her to get out of town or she would die. Before the interview ended, the subject stated she could not be positive, but she thought the man with Ruby was Oswald. And turns out the man with the scar on his cheek is none other than Larry Crayford. And he pretty much admitted this little interaction with Jack Ruby in his Warren Commission testimony. He states that he did meet Jack uh, for a late night dinner meeting at the Lucas B&B restaurant 
in the wee wee hours of the morning on November 22nd, 1963. He did admit to that. So we have a guy who looks a hell of a lot like Oswald, who this, who this woman, after seeing Oswald's pictures plastered all over the newspaper and television, because this report was uh, taken, I believe, in January of 64. Um, you know, it, it clicked something in her memory that this guy with Jack Ruby was Lee Oswald. But, of course, it wasn't, because Lee Oswald was in Irving at Ruth Payne's house sleeping at at this time. So, here we have an instance of somebody who looks like Lee Oswald, is mistaken for Lee Oswald, who is actually Larry Crayford with Jack Ruby here. Now, let's move forward a little bit to about mm, 7.30 in the morning, on the morning of November 22nd. We all know Top 10 Record Store again place where J.D. Tippett went to make his phone call. Well, Texas journalist Earl Goles, during an interview with Dub Stark, who was the owner of the Top Ten Record Store, said that Stark claims that he sold Oswald a ticket to the Dick Clark Rock and Roll Variety Show at 7.30 a.m. on November 22nd. So, I mean, is this guy legit? Can we believe this guy? Or or was there a guy who looked like Oswald who came into this record store and bought a ticket for the Dick Clark Variety Show? Well, it couldn't have been our Lee Oswald because he was in Irving walking to Buell Frazier's house about this time. So it had to be somebody who looked like Oswald. Okay. Now, next time we see somebody who looks like Oswald, this time has Oswald identification, though, is at approximately 9.30 a.m., November 22nd, 1963. Couldn't possibly be our boy, our Patsy Oswald, because he's at work at the School Book Depository at this time. But Fred Moore, who worked at the Jiffy store on South Industrial in Dallas, advised the following concerning a report that he had waited on Lee Harvey Oswald as a customer at the Jiffy store at about 8.30 a.m. and again later in the morning on November 22, 1963, prior to the assassination of John Kennedy. Identification of this individual as Oswald, Moore said, arose when he asked him for ID as the proof or age for purchase of two bottles of beer. Moore said he figured the man was over 21, but the store frequently requires proof uh, because of past difficulties with local authorities for serving beer to minors. Much of the beer sold is consumed there on the premises. When asked for identification, the customer in question said, Sure, I got ID and pulled a Texas driver's license from his billfold. Moore said that he noted the name appeared as Lee Oswald or possibly Lee H. Oswald. He remembered this particularly because, as moments later, he had remarked to George Worthington, the store manager, who came into the rear of the store as this individual was leaving, that Lee Oswald was a good Jewish name. As Moore recalled, the birth date on the license was 1939, and he thought it to have been the 10th of the month, when it was actually not the 10th, but it was the 10th month, which is October. Further identification of this individual as Oswald Moore said arose when he had seen Oswald on television in the course of his travel from the, De- from the Dallas Police Department prior to his being shot by Ruby. At this time, he recalled the name and identification of Oswald as the customer in his store on the previous day. So, he realized this 
something was up, you know, and this is the next day he's, he's giving this report to the FBI. Showing a photograph of Oswald, uh, the New Orleans Police Department mugshot from August. However, Moore said that the man in the store appeared to have been thinner in the face. Moore described the person he saw was as white, male, early 20s, approximately 5'8", 5'9", 150 pounds, hair dark, hallowed cheeks, light shirt, other description of which not recalled, no glasses, no hat. Uh, so, yeah. Now, this person came back about a half an hour later. He bought some Pico Brittle and consumed it on the premises. Um, so, of course, from the span of probably 8.30 to 9, 9.30, we have this guy, unforgettably, at least by Fred Moore, in his store, guy that looks like Oswald, has Oswald identification, yet is not Lee Oswald. And if you look at pictures of Leigh Crayford, he does look like he has hallowed cheeks. <sighs> so, and this is not the only instance. This, I'm just giving you from this day. There was many, many other instances, even accompanied by Jack Ruby, where people mistook Larry Crayford as, as Lee Oswald. You know, there was an electronic store. People thought he was with Oswald and he wasn't. Uh, could have been Crayford at the shooting range. Could have been Crayford being that crazy guy that was test driving the car who said he was Lee Oswald. Um, could have been Larry Crayford who Beverly Oliver met in the carousel club allegedly. Um, could have been uh Larry Crayford, who who overheard talk, who overheard talking to Jack Ruby by Carol Jarnigan, who was a local Dallas attorney at the time, that he overheard him talking about uh, the assassination. So, you know, th these people aren't the only ones to mistake Larry Crayford for, for for Lee Oswald. Even Ruth Payne said, you know, that the resemblance was uncanny when she was shown photos. So. I say all that to say this. We flash back to J.D. Tippett. He's supposed to kill Oswald. He's supposed to be the hero. Everything's supposed to go nice and smooth, but now everything's screwy. Because Oswald didn't get off the bus. Oswald didn't come out of his rooming house. So now he's driving around looking. Because maybe, maybe there is a plan to meet at the Texas Theater. You know, in case something... Something goes wrong, or that was the original plan that they told Oswald, even though Oswald wasn't ever supposed to make it to the theater. Um, so, follow me here for a second. We have J.D. Tippett driving down the street. And, you know, I doubt that he ever met Lee Oswald. So he'd probably never actually seen the man. But, you know, of course he had a description. Uh, he may have even been shown a picture. But... Imagine this for a second. We have Larry Crayford <laughs> walking down the street. Okay. J.D. Tibbetts says, all right, well, this guy, you know, he's got the dark hair, about the same height, build. All right, so he pulls over, says, excuse me, sir. Uh, we just had, a, a, you know, an incident back here in, in downtown. Uh, there's a description of the suspect, and you kind of match that description. Would you mind if I see some identification, please, sir? Crayford said, sure, buddy. Reaches into his jacket. 
Hands J.D. Tippett his, his, his wallet. Tippett looks at it and says, Oh, Lee Harvey Oswald, son of a bitch. Okay. Now, this is where things start to go south. J.D. Tippett gets out of his car, starts to go for his gun. Maybe was telling him, all right, you stay right there. And Crayford was like, uh, no. And got the drop on him. Boom, boom, boom. Right? Tippett falls down. Crayford walks around in front of the car. One in the head to make sure. Okay? And then he makes his little getaway. Now, why does this sound like Crayford? Well, somebody who looked like Lee Oswald had a wallet with Oswald identification in it. Okay? That day. There was a wallet found at the Tippett crime scene. At least most researchers can agree that, you know, that we believe this is even on some news footage. It appears that, that there was a wallet found at the Tippett crime scene with Lee Oswald identification in it. So, you know, so, I mean, some people think that the wallet might have come from the jacket as well. Who knows? Either way, the killer of J.D. Tippett had a wallet with Oswald identification in it. And we know it couldn't have been actually Lee Oswald because he was already at the theater by this time, at least according to Butch Burroughs. And I think Julia Postal even attested this is possible. So we have somebody who looks like Oswald with Oswald identification that couldn't possibly be Oswald at this time. Which leaves us with only a few possibilities. Um, so, sorry, there's a little noise here. Um, you know, so now people say, well, how did the cops, or how did Lee Oswald supposedly get the murder weapon on him at the theater? Well, there was an instance where in the in the Dallas police radio logs, they had a suspect cornered in the Abundant Life Church. A couple minutes later, they radio in, never mind, wrong guy, nothing to see here. Boom. This is when Crayford could have given the weapon to Gerald Hill, for instance, or Westbrook. Um, and it could have been easily planted on Oswald at the theater, you know, dropped uh, in the struggle, things of this nature, you know, pretended like they pulled it out of his waistband, whatever. Um, you know, so the gun transfer is not a huge deal for me. Um, I even have problems, you know, who knows if, if, if Oswald even actually, you know, ordered and received this gun, you know, who the hell knows? There's problems with all that stuff. But let's just stick to what we know, don't know about the uh, Tippett murder. Now, why does the actual murdering of, of, of J.D. Tippett have a almost a mafia-style execution feel to it? I mean, he shot three times across the car. He falls down on the pavement. Whoever shot J.D. Tippett walked around the car and put one in his head. That's what we call the make sure shot, the money shot. And this is normally employed by hitmen associated with mafia. Or people that are used to killing people. You know. 
even though you shoot somebody, you know, there's a good chance that you're not going to hit what you need to hit to kill them. It's always a good idea. If you want to make sure that somebody's dead and they stay dead, that you put one in the head. And why is this significant? Well, it's significant for this reason. In the early 2000s, Canadian researcher Peter Whitney actually caught up with Larry Crayford and interviewed him in person when he was living in Oregon. And Crayford told him a lot of stuff. And one of the things that Crayford told him was that he was a hitman in the early 60s in San Francisco. And uh, he actually had to leave there because he ended up getting like the Don's niece pregnant or something to that effect. And they told him he better get the hell out of town or they would kill him. So, you know, it seems like a fantastical story, you know, right? But it was actually corroborated by Crayford's brother a couple months later when, when Whitney talked to him. So that makes sense. You have Crayford, who looks like Oswald. You have somebody with Oswald identification. You have Crayford employing mafia techniques in the actual murder. And he was a hitman for the mafia in the early 60s. He had previous military experience. He was a crack shot in the army. He was in the army in Germany when General Walker was in charge over there. Um, and doing his whole blue propaganda program. So was Crayford subject, you know, to this? It's who the hell knows. You know, Crayford really wouldn't open up about his uh, military service other than to say he was used in many covert operations in, in going into East Berlin and over into Laos and Vietnam and that he was injured. He even showed Whitney scars on his leg, you know, that he was very proud of and, and, and his service. He, he had a medical discharge, um, I believe in 1959. So there's all these things that kind of make you say, hmm, Hmm. Now, Crayford also did another funny thing. He lied to his wife about when he left Dallas. And then he also tried to lie to Peter Whitney. But Whitney had Crayford's warrant commission testimony and uh, his interview where it was clearly stated when Crayford left Dallas because if, if Crayford left Dallas on the day of the assassination, that would have put him leaving Dallas before the assassination even happened or the murder of JD Tippett even happened. But he actually left Dallas the day after the day after the assassination, the day after Tippett is shot. Because he gets dragged around by Jack Ruby early in the morning on Saturday morning to photograph these Earl War impeach Earl Warren billboards and they go to the post office, they're trying to figure out who owns these PO boxes and trying to tie them back to the John Birch Society and this and that, which is another link, hello, to what Jack Ruby was afraid of in Dallas. But I believe that that's not all they did. I believe they had a little discussion. Because The, it, you know, things didn't quite go as planned. Oswald was not killed shortly after the assassination. 
the guy, the cop that was supposed to kill him, got killed by Larry Crayford, who was impersonating Oswald. Like this, in the big scheme of things, nothing that could go more wrong could, could go more wrong than this. You know, this was the worst scenario possible. A nightmare. This would have sent Jack Ruby into a tizzy fit. And by all accounts, that whole weekend, Jack Ruby was worried. I mean, he was stalking Oswald that Friday night in, in, in the, uh, in the, uh, police department. Couldn't get close enough to him or didn't have the balls to pull out his gun and shoot him then. I don't know. You know, but he got him, got him on Sunday. He was trying to figure out what to do on Saturday about things. You know, maybe he was trying to convince Crayford to clean up his mess. He look, man, you should. You know, you shot this cop. Now everything's all crazy. They got Oswald in custody. I need you to kill Oswald. And maybe Crayford's like, no, (laughs) I've had enough of this shit. I'm not getting involved anymore. I had to kill a cop. You know, this, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I'm out. And he bounced out of Dallas and stuck his thumb out and headed for Michigan. As far away from Dallas as you could possibly get in the United States. Okay. I mean, Michigan's up there. It's the mitten. It's at the top of the United States, about as far away from Dallas as you can get. Now, when this happens, when Larry Crayford leaves town, this leaves Jack Ruby holding the proverbial bag. All right. He's the only one that could possibly clean up this whole mess. You know, Oswald has got to die before he starts talking, you know, and it's, 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 quite possible that that you know there was a message get gotten into oswald that said look dummy shut the hell up don't say a word we'll get you out of this don't worry just don't say a word you know but how long could they trust that to last i don't know you know and jack ruby had to silence oswald he was left holding the bag. He was the only one left to clean up the mess. He was the only one left that could do this. And by all accounts, you know, this is what transpired. So what, what else do we have to bolster this claim that there's, you know, there's two Oswalds or two, uh, you know, we got Oswald. We got a guy that looks like Oswald. Well, it's a Texas theater. All right. It shared an alley with a hobby store and the owner, Bernard, hair for 30 years thought that he had witnessed the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald out the back door of the Texas theater in the alley until <laughs> until he happened to see the pic- the famous picture of Oswald being dragged out the front of the Texas theater which led him to then ponder what in the hell he saw because he he swore, you know, that for 30 years he had seen them arrest Oswald out the back of this theater. Well, then if it wasn't Oswald, because we know Oswald was taken out the front, then what did he see? Well, enter Butch Burroughs again. Butch Burroughs corroborates Bernard Hare's claim. Butch Burroughs says that about four or five minutes after they arrested Oswald out the front of the Texas theater, They arrested another man and took him out the back door of the theater. A guy who looked like Oswald. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. 
you know, and it's what we have. Are these guys credible? I don't know. They seem nice, like nice Texans, nice, credible Texan fellas, you know, elderly gentlemen who's got nothing to gain for lying, you know, so what does this tell us? I mean, and there's more, there's more, there's connections with, with Collins radio and, and Carl Mathers and, and the tippets and, and all this and that. And another guy that looked like Oswald being seen in, 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 in one of the guys from Collins radio's car, uh, you know, approximately what, two or three hours after the assassination. So whoever these folks were that arrested another person in the Texas school book depository, who knows who they were, who knows if this guy ever made it back to the station or if they were told, look, that's the wrong guy. Just let him go. We also have police reports bolstering the fact that another suspect was arrested in the Texas theater. Stringfellow in his police report said that there was the subject was arrested in the balcony when we know Oswald was on the floor and he never went to the balcony. Then we also have the official homicide report of J.D. Tippett, who states that the subject, written by a different person, stated that the subject was arrested in the balcony of the Texas theater. Now, I don't know what kind of a dumb, corn-fed Texan you have to be to confuse a balcony with the floor of the theater, but you'd have to be pretty stupid to not know the difference between a balcony and a floor, especially if you're there. I mean, you can't write a report about something that you didn't see and you weren't there. So were these guys not just mistaken or did they witness two, two separate events that, you know, part of part of one events kind of seeping over into the other, you know, this is where things start to fall in place and start to make sense and start to, you know, get crazy. And, and the, the description of this other fellow taking out the back of the theater matches Crafer. They said it was a guy and kind of a ruddy complexion, uh, white t-shirt and, uh, I forget what color pants, but he didn't have no jacket on. And the type of jacket that was stashed away under the car behind the Texaco station that supposedly Tibbet's killer shed on his, uh, getaway was the exact kind of jacket that Larry Crayford wore. And a short Eisenhower-type zippered jacket. He was photographed in Michigan wearing a a tan, light brown one. You know, supposedly the one found, you know, behind the gas station was either, you know, like a dark white or light gray. And not to mention the jacket itself was made by a California... uh, you know, men's clothing maker. And it had dry cleaning tags in it. Oswald didn't dry clean a thing in his life. And, you know, people in Texas don't buy jackets made from California. I mean, come on. But we do know that Crayford spent time in California. In the early 60s. So, there's that connection as well. So this is why I wanted to lay it all out for you and kind of try to explain it to you. And this is not even getting into the whole uh, 1026 North Beckley thing or, or Oswald being in Irving, you know, more than, than they let on. Because I think it's real interesting if you go look up 
uh, Marina, or not Marina, Bruce Payne and her Oswald timeline. Lee Oswald is in Irving a hell of a lot more than people think. Um, which, you know, gives that supposition that it might have not been Lee Oswald staying at this uh, Beckley rooming house. But, you know, I got into that last summer. I just wanted to do this show because it's been it's been almost a year since we talked about this. I got a lot of new listeners who might not be privy to some of this information or where I'm coming from. Um, wanted to wrap some new things into this some new perspectives with, with Ruby and Walker and, and this and that put some more puzzle pieces together. Like I said, this is not etched in stone people. Um, you know, but it's, I'm trying to put some puzzle pieces together in a succinct, logical fashion, you know, that makes some kind of sense from what we know from what the available evidence and documents and testimony tell us you know there's in my eyes there's no way Oswald could have made it to the tip of murder scene on foot in time by 106 just couldn't happen in all likelihood he caught the bus as Erlene Roberts said she looked out the window and last saw him standing there at the bus stop in all likelihood he grabbed the bus and went to the Texas theater bought a ticket went in sat down got his popcorn or whatever from Butch Burroughs Went back, sat down. Now he moved around some in the theater, which leads, you know, would lead you to believe that he was looking for somebody that he was supposed to meet there. But of course, Oswald wasn't supposed to live that long to actually meet somebody there. So he didn't know that person he's supposed to meet there is not there because he's not supposed to be there because he's supposed to be dead. You know, it's very quirky, very quirky. So that is my thinking on the J.D. Tippett murder. And if, I, if I'm missing something, if you think I've got something wrong, I want to hear about it. I want to hear from you. Tell me where I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I'm doing a lot of supposition here, but look, at some point you have to. You have to. Or we're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to get anywhere. But that's it about this stuff for today, you know, and don't forget people, make sure you send me stuff for ridiculousness of the week because it sounds like a fun topic. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes and your ears out for ridiculousness in research when it comes to the Kennedy assassination. Send me your examples, send me anything you got on it, links, video, whatever. And, uh, I'll make sure to give you credit and talk about it here. And I greatly appreciate everybody checking out the show. Please like the show. Please share it on social media like a mother effer. Just say, hey, I'm enjoying listening to the Lone Gummit Podcast. Here's a link. You know, I greatly appreciate it. You know, once again, thank you everybody out there who's been listening. The, the numbers are through the roof and I greatly appreciate it. Um, I'm going to leave you with this, okay? Just this little snippet of information. In October, about the same time that, of course, Oswald gets his job at the School Book Depository and comes back to Dallas, and Larry Crayford shows up in town, uh, a three-man musical combo group was performing in Jack Ruby's club that consisted of John Anderson on trumpet, Bill Willis on drums, and William Simmons on piano. 
The small group worked only four hours a day from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Curiously, and without explanation, Willis and Simmons lived 15 miles away from the Carousel Club in a house located at 2530 West 5th Street in Irving, Texas, just 200 feet west on the opposite side of the street from Ruth Payne. When Ruby shot Oswald, Nancy Powell, who was Tammy True, told the Warren Commission that she saw Bill Willis near the police station. Neither Willis nor Simmons were interviewed by the WC, Warren Commission. So there's another little curious uh, factoid, you know, that maybe Ruby had eyeballs on the Payne household and the comings and goings of one Lee Harvey Oswald. So anyway, keep that in mind. All kinds of crazy stuff going on. And uh, like I said, give me some feedback. Tell me where you think I got it wrong. If you, if you think my hypothesis is shit, tell me. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to put it out there for some newer listeners. You know, and talk about it once again. And uh, I appreciate everybody who listens and shares the show. And that is it for this one, people. I will see you next week. For episode 111. This some bitches in the can beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Benjamin Banger, freemusicarchive.org.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear Tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear Tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.